as pilots, we have a saying, aviate, navigate, communicate, fly the airplane first, then make sure you're going the right direction. And then after all of that, then communicate, whether you're talking to air traffic control or other people in the airplane, whatever. Once you, you're flying the airplane, you're getting it going in the direction you need to go, then you can focus on communicating and solving the problems and, and, and doing everything else. Crisis in a family business is very much the same way, or any business, really. We have to make sure we're doing our job, we're continuing our operations, things are still happening, the important things are being addressed. Then we have to make sure we're headed in the right direction. And then whatever time is left over, spend solving whatever the crisis might be, cash flow issues or personnel issues or, or whatever it is. Something that I think is prone to happen, especially in family businesses, but in anyone, is where people get so consumed by whatever the problem of the day is that there's a lot of no one's flying the airplane. Welcome to Breaking Down Boxes. I'm Gene Marino with Acres Packaging. And I'm Joe Morelli with Houston Patterson and Lewisburg Printing Company. We have compelling conversations with successful entrepreneurs in the packaging space. We're really excited about this month's episode. Joe and I have talked to many people in the industry just dealing with the family dynamics around a business, which is something that's prevalent in our industry, prevalent in the association. And we were searching for someone outside the industry that maybe could come in and, and provide a little bit of a different perspective in order to really gain some insight into lessons learned and some of the struggles because Joe and I believe that the struggles are pretty similar. They may change in certain details, but uh, in an overall sense, it's, it's pretty consistent. So we said, well, let's go find someone. We reached out to a really impactful group here in Chicago, the Entrepreneur and Family Business Council at DePaul University. I was able to connect with Liz, the executive director, and we started to have some conversation around AICC and our membership profile and things that many of our members were communicating to us that would be of interest on the podcast. And Liz connected us with a gentleman that we'll meet today, BJ Slater, the owner of Plant Marvel. He's got a great story. We're excited to have him. Before we dig in, I think it's important to recognize the EFBC and what they try to bring to their membership. I think it's, it's very impactful. And I think it's something that is growing in importance. The baby boomer generation begins to think through transition and succession. I think I'm Gen X, so at, at 53, my group is 10 to 15 years away from that, and, and these are things that affect family businesses. And, and I think at the end of the day, the goal here is to be able to have fun and successful Thanksgivings without uh, mashed potatoes and gravy winding up on your business partner slash brother slash father slash sister-in-law slash sister slash daughter. But essentially, uh, the Entrepreneur and Family Business Council is a non-for-profit membership organization that really exists to educate and empower people of family and entrepreneurial businesses and help them achieve their business goals through impactful programs, strategic relationships, and a community of peer support. To put it simply, they believe in helping people be the best leaders they can be in all aspects of their lives. If you want to learn more, you can go to www.com myefbc.com. We're pleased to welcome BJ Slater. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thanks again. As we talked to you in the pre-screening calls, it was clear you have an incredible family dynamic to your business. But then as I started digging in a little bit about your history, you were a pilot for 15 years, I believe, and how that translates into how you run your business, I think is going to be super impactful for our listeners and for a lot of these people in the industry. So I guess before we dig in, BJ, give us a couple minutes on Plant Marvel, 
what you guys do, fertilizer business, how you guys have become who you've become in the industry. Plant Marvel Laboratories is a fertilizer blender. So we make water-soluble fertilizers for commercial growers, commercial greenhouses, turf growers, golf courses, that sort of a thing. Basically, we supply the nutrients to the people who grow the annuals and perennial plants and things that you might buy to plant at your house or people that do landscaping. All those you know, are grown in greenhouses and similar facilities that use large quantities of fertilizers. And we specialize in providing the best quality water-soluble fertilizers. What we do at Plant Marvel that's a little bit different is that what we really do is we help growers solve problems. We send out salespeople who have a horticultural background, have a They've worked in the greenhouse world. They know the types of uh, issues that people encounter. And we, we consult with them. We help train their staff in some cases. We teach them about the different tests that they can do to make sure that they're, they're getting the nutrients that they need, how to measure the pH of their water and soil, how to basically uh, solve the problems. And then we create nutrient solutions that are are unique to their situation, either through an available product that we already have, or in some cases, we'll custom blend products specific for, for a grower to meet their needs. And the business goes back 100 plus years. Uh, yes. Yeah, it was started uh, back in Ohio by a, a professor of agriculture 100 years ago this year. And my grandfather got involved with the business shortly after that. It moved from Ohio to the Chicago area, actually about around Peoria, I believe. It moved into his uh, basement and then grew into his garage and then <laughs> eventually into buildings outside the home. He passed it on to my father and uncle and then my father and uncle just recently sold the business to my cousin and I. So we're the third generation owners now. We work out of a, a factory in Chicago Heights, Illinois. Supplying products all over North America. US. Yes, we mostly sell to the U.S. but all over. We have customers in, in Canada, uh, a few down in Central America, a few in Europe, a few in uh, Asia, and we recently picked up a co-packing customer that does a lot of work in the cannabis industry. Nice. I assume being a family business, you spent your days as a kid running around, you know, causing your dad all kinds of trouble. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just messing everything up during summer break. Or Who packed this? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so is that how you, uh, your initial exposure to the company? Yeah. We moved into the building in Chicago Heights in 1980. So I was about two years old at the time. We are uh, have always been a company that does everything ourselves. So all of the machinery that we have, our automation, everything, uh, we've kind of uh, designed and built all of our custom equipment. And that was my dad's passion. He did that really well. Uh, the, my childhood, is I have many memories of being at the plant on the weekends when he's tinkering with a PLC. And I mean a PLC where you've got the tractor feed dot matrix printout that has all the code in it, and he's having to change line by line the programming of it. And meanwhile, I'm running around on the catwalks around the mixers and everything else. And <laughs> I, I, I grew up there, as did, did most of us, my brother and sister and then all my cousins. We all worked there in some capacity or spent time there throughout our childhood. Definitely something that was always present. When you moved to Chicago Heights in 80, your dad and your uncle are working for your grandfather at the time? Correct. 
I'm assuming they had a transition at some point. When did they take over the business? Um, I don't know the exact year, but yeah, they, they had both been working there uh, for, for quite a while. And my grandfather and grandmother were moving to Florida from the Beverly neighborhood of Chicago down to, to Florida. My grandfather had decided that he wanted to, to, to sell the business, something that I think my, my father and uncle had been wanting him to do for quite some time. I don't know the details, but as the story goes, my grandfather said, you can buy the business from me. This is how, how I want to do it. My father and uncle agreed. And then at the last minute, my grandfather said, no, I'm not ready to do that yet. The family story is, is that my grandmother was the one who stepped in and said, Joe, my, my grandfather's name, you're going to do this. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm moving without you. So eventually, Grandma Jean took care of that. That's pretty good incentive. <laughs> the yeah. real boss in the yeah. family asserted herself. That's exactly right. And I don't think that'll ever go away in any of the stories or people that we talk to. And I'm sure you have a similar dynamic as well, where it sounds like a great idea, but so many of these owners, it, it gets closer and closer to the finish line and they start saying to themselves, what am I going to do with my, myself and my time? And we talk a lot about this in privately held business, it's a 24-7 deal and you become uh, intertwined, your, your personal and professional into the same uh, piece of cloth. And, and so it almost takes neurological surgery to, to uh, dismantle. Yeah, very much so. Years later, when my cousin and I took over the business from our fathers, I saw that again, much more up close. I mean, it's just such a massive transition. Our parents had worked there for it's their whole life. close to 50, yeah. Yeah, their, their entire adult lives for sure. And, you know, to think that, oh, well, now I'm not going to come here every day anymore. And now I'm, you know, this is a whole new stage of life. It's a huge transition. They experienced a whole range of emotions of which I'm sure I'm only aware of a few. And we're, we are going to yeah, unpack that later. But uh, you're two, and I know uh, you, don't, you don't graduate and go right into the business. We've got some, we've got some road to, to travel here. You didn't want to go into the business right away, or did you have grand visions of running the company when you were a kid, or was it something you wanted to stay away from? It again started with my grandparents moving to Florida, because we started flying to Florida when I was a kid quite a bit, and I became enamored with airplanes and flying. And I remember looking out the window, and every time we get on or off the plane, I want to take a peek in the cockpit and see what's going on, and I ask a lot of annoying questions and things. That I never really grew out of. <laughs> and so I, I decided pretty early on that I wanted to be a pilot or an engineer or something to do with aviation. When I went through high school, I started, those kind of dreams started to distill down into more specific plans. I ended up going to Purdue, studied aerospace engineering for two years until the faculty and I decided I should do something else. <laughs> Uh, so then I went into the, the aviation technology program at Purdue, and it just so happened I was already at Purdue, and they have one of the better aviation programs in, in the world. So I completed my degree there, studying, becoming a pilot and, and working as a commercial pilot, but also studying to be an aircraft mechanic and uh, sort of a well-rounded education. My interest in technology and gadgets and, and machines and, and automation, all that stuff that I had picked up from my father in my childhood still stuck with me. So playing with airplanes, whether I was flying them or fixing them or whatever, I just loved every, every bit of it. And I had no intention of coming back to the family business. So I, I got into aviation. It was right around uh, 2001 and w with the <laughs> perfect, yeah, perfect timing. <laughs> so 
so since the, the airline industry was going through uh, a bunch of turmoil at the time, while most of my classmates went on to fly for regional and eventually major airlines, I decided I wanted to do something more interesting <laughs> than that. And so I moved to Alaska and became a bush pilot for uh, about six months there and then transitioned back to Anchorage and flew around in cargo planes for a while, crossed off a couple bucket list items, had a great time, and then started looking for the next challenge. I read a story as I was researching of uh, air sickness that you might have gotten while you were carrying a passenger over the, oh, yes. over the tundra of Alaska. Let me know what it's like to be flying at 20,000 feet, getting sick, have a passenger in your back seat, and uh, not be able to land the plane. That particular story happened when I, I worked for a company called Grant Aviation. This was out in western Alaska, and I believe this flight was from Bethel, Alaska. Population 8? 8,000, maybe. <laughs> I guess it's, it's a large village, but it's definitely a, a, a village. What's interesting about Alaska is that half the population of Alaska lives in and around Anchorage. So if you get away from Anchorage, it's much more sparsely populated. These were native Yupik villages. Grant was one of several air carriers that would, would take people and mail and cargo from place to place because it was the only way to get around. There were no roads connecting things. So that was why bush flying was such a common mode of transportation. I was taking a, a small airplane. This was like a a, a seven-seat airplane, a Cessna 207, that we affectionately call the, the sled. And I was uh, taking... Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I was taking uh, um, one passenger with her infant child, and then the rest of the plane, we had taken the seats out, put in the cargo netting, and we were taking uh, mail and supplies, and we were going up to, to a village. And she was my only passenger. And because she had an infant, she couldn't sit in the front seat with me because there's the flight controls and everything. We actually had her in one of the back seats and I was up in the front by myself. We took off, flew an hour or so, and then somewhere about the middle of the flight, I began to realize that the eggs and bacon I'd cooked that morning <laughs> apparently were not well cooked. Oh. Maybe it's partly pilot pride, but I have to clarify, I wasn't air sick, I was, okay. it was food poisoning. The end result was the same. <laughs> Here I am, and we're, we're getting closer to this airport, and I, I can tell it, at some point that I'm, I'm going to get sick. This is going to happen, and there's not much I'm going to be able to do about it. If I was by myself, I would just get it over with, and there'd be no problem. But I have a feeling that the, I believe she was a teacher, so the, the, the teacher in my backseat with her child might be concerned when the only pilot on the airplane reaches for an air sickness bag. And, of course, the worst part was is that I didn't have an air sickness bag up front. <laughs> So I had to reach back and grab her air sickness bag, <laughs> which I'm sure she noticed. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it's a loud airplane. I have a headset on. She doesn't. There's not really any way for us to communicate. And I'm a little worried if I were to turn around to explain what was going on, that that movement might trigger the impending problem. Um, so instead, I very quietly and nonchalantly um, unload my breakfast into this air sickness bag <laughs> tie it off, drop it on the floor next to me, and then we go and, and land the plane. She was wonderful about it. <laughs> we, we land, and as we're rolling out uh, down the runway, uh, I can hear her uh, shouting over the sound of the, the airplane. Said, oh my gosh, are you okay? I just gave her like a big thumbs up. I'm fine. And I thankfully I felt much better after that. <laughs> that kind of leads me to where, where I wanted to maybe get into some time of crisis. Obviously, as a pilot, you can't plan for stuff that might happen in the air. And how does that maybe translate to you as an owner of a business now. I've sort of found that flying an airplane 
there's a lot of parallels between that and other aspects of life. Um, I think they're more relevant than most of my family does, and they get tired of me mentioning it every once in a while. But um, I, I joke that everything's relatable to flying. Um, and in particular, yeah, crisis management. As pilots, we have a saying, um, uh, aviate, navigate, communicate. Those are your priorities. So step one, no matter what's going on, fly the plane. And important. thankfully, yeah, that's <laughs> pretty, yeah, pretty vital. Yeah, pretty important. A common example we use in flight training is if you have a passenger who's hyperventilating and you're trying to land the airplane, but you can't be distracted by what's going on. So aviate, navigate, communicate. Fly the airplane first, then make sure you're going the right direction. And then after all of that, then communicate, whether you're talking to air traffic control or other people in the airplane, whatever. Once you, you're flying the airplane, you're getting it going in the direction you need to go, then you can focus on communicating and solving the problems and, and, and doing everything else. That was kind of like the, the story about um, my, uh, my unfortunate <laughs> incident in that airplane was that, that's basically what I did. I had to make sure I was still flying the airplane and that we were still getting to the destination we were going to. And then after that, I could then focus on, on solving the problem. A uh, crisis in a family business is, is very much the same way, or any business, really. We have to make sure we're, we're doing our job, we're continuing our operations, things are still happening, the important things are being addressed. Then we have to make sure we're headed in the right direction. And then finally, we, can, we, we often can then, whatever time is left over, spend solving whatever the crisis might be, cash flow issues or personnel issues or, or whatever it is. Something that I think is prone to happen, especially in family businesses, but in anyone, is where people get so consumed by whatever the problem of the day is that there's a lot of no one flying the airplane. You know, there's a lot of day-to-day -day stuff and important things that sort of get sidetracked as we uh, begin to focus more and more on whatever the issue of the day is. One of the things I've learned having been in this business now, having been an owner for five years and being back in the business for almost 10 years now, is that there's always a problem of the day. There's always something going on. That's and, right. Um, but you have to make sure that you're still executing your strategy and you're, you're doing what you need to do first and foremost before getting caught up in all the, the drama, so to speak. Interesting. You know, at some point, you are, you're flying in Alaska and you're going to make a shift here. You just didn't wake up one day and say, hey, I think I'll go back to the Midwest. It's, it's so lovely. Right. Yeah, it didn't, <laughs> didn't quite happen that way. I wanted to get back to Indiana. I missed the mountains. Um, <laughs> I, I actually stopped about halfway. I stopped in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. I only spent about three years in Alaska. Toward the end of that time, I was flying for a company that flew regional routes for, for FedEx. So that it wasn't FedEx itself, but they were... Uh, a regional cargo carrier that did smaller routes for them. As companies go, it was the largest company I'd ever worked for, 300-some employees. As I began working there, I really appreciated how they operated, how they treated their employees. I, I felt really comfortable there in that role, in that company, as a, as a line pilot, so that when the director of safety position opened up, I kind of applied for that job not just, it wasn't on a whim. I thought I might have been a bit of a long shot for it. I had decided that that was a place where I could go and launch like the next phase of my career. I had done some flying in Alaska, marked a bunch of bucket list items off my list, and now I, I kind of wanted to pursue the, the career aspect of my flying career. Applied, went down there for some interviews, and uh, eventually landed that position and spent five years in North Idaho, which is also beautiful country, then began learning airline management. You know, that 
aspect of things. Over the years, really learned kind of the ins and outs of how the airline industry works, which added to, uh, one, my fascination of, of running a business, my interest in, in management and kind of what makes a good organization. Yeah. And sort of took all that and then that then led the, to the next step, which was I applied for an MBA program at the University of Idaho. Fantastic program. That added to even more my desire to, you know, get into running a business, possibly starting a business. Um, I was much more interested then in, in organizational behavior. And I, at one point, contemplated staying in school and maybe you know, pursuing an advanced degree in organizational psychology or something along those lines. And it was right about that point, uh, about halfway through that program, uh, when I came back home for the 4th of July holiday. This would have been early 2013. I was at Plant Marvel. Typically, I would reappear there from time to time whenever I was in town. And my cousin, who had been working there a good 15 years by that point, really out of the blue, he says, I'd like you to uh, consider coming back and buying this business from our fathers with me. Any point leading up to that? Had he alluded to that he, in the conversation with you? No. Or was this like way out of left field? <laughs> it, 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 was, it was pretty out of left field. And the way things had sort of developed over time, he was the only member of our generation that had been working full-time at the plant as an adult. We had all done stints there at one point or another. I had a lot of summer jobs there all the way through college. So I, I had done a lot of the work that my dad had done. We built new machines and automated things, and I learned how they worked and how to program them and all this other stuff. But I had no intention of ever doing the business full time. He was the only one who had expressed any interest. And so it was kind of understood amongst our generation that he was going to take over the business when his dad and, and my father retired. So yeah, it was way out of left field when he essentially made that offer to me. The reason he did that is because my dad wasn't wasn't fulfilling his role as well as he used to. By this point, he was about 10 years into a Parkinson's diagnosis, and he, was, he had a lot of health issues related with that. He had a lot of concerns about his retirement, and he has this house he's been working on. And, and I think eventually my cousin, who was our, one of our salespeople at the time, was butting heads with my father over a bunch of things not happening the way, you know, as quickly as they should or the way they should. And so uh, realizing that he had this opportunity to bring in outside help if he wanted to, my cousin approached me and said, hey, would you, you know, you know how to do all this stuff. You, you've learned everything that your dad has done. So we both thought, uh, <laughs> would you consider coming back here? And I think he knew I was in business school at the time, so that I'm sure didn't hurt. And the idea was that we would fill the roles that our fathers had done. His father was the director of sales, and he was going to fulfill that role. My father was sort of the director of operations and did all the stuff in the plant. That would be kind of the natural role for me to fall into. And I thought long and hard about it because... Um, Things in, the, in my other career <laughs> that I've been building all the time were going really, really well. But then there's just something about owning your own business and especially an established you know, family business with history and whatnot that I think presents opportunities that I, I just wasn't able to see elsewhere. Did you go back to Idaho and finish up what you were doing or did you just cancel yeah. your flight back? Yeah, that was one of the stipulations. Not only that um, we needed time to make it happen, to, to, to move and whatnot, but also that I would, you know, the company was going to end up paying for me to, to go back and finish my MBA. Just kind of 
commuted uh, for the, for the last year of that. But that was all part of the the deal that we had struck. There's obviously probably some kind of discussion you want to have with your dad and your uncle, your wife. How are you managing all that in a pretty short time window? The first thing I did is I obviously went back to my wife and I said, well, I just had this conversation with Joe. And I'm like, what do you, what do you think? Because it, it was clearly a good opportunity. As we talked about it, we, we clearly agreed it was, a, it was a good opportunity. But my history with my dad has been uh, touch and go. We have a good relationship overall, but working together with him obviously is a very different dynamic than being father and son. And seeing was it his style? Um, it, yeah, it was a little bit his style, a little bit wanting to have control over certain aspects of things. Um, I later learned that a lot of it was that for 40, 50 years, he hadn't been outside of our family business. So there was, I felt like a perspective that he was missing where a lot of things I was advocating for, he just couldn't connect with. Also, there was this weird dynamic that I thought I had anticipated, but remember, this was a, a place where I had grown up here. And so by, you know, and then I went off and had a 15 year career in aviation. And by coming back, I was essentially coming back to an environment where these people the last thing they really remember of me was when I was 18. Their image of me and, and expectations of me was largely based on that. So I came back and quickly found that I was kind of being treated much the same way I was when I was you know, just out of high school. You had a lot to prove. Yeah, a lot to prove, a lot of uh, just assumptions about my capabilities and, and whatnot. And this was all stuff that my wife predicted. Hmm. She knew that this was there was going to be an uphill battle with this. And I had a, a chip on my shoulder and I, you know, had this MBA and I, I walked in with this attitude that like, I'm going to come in here and turn this place around. And it's going to be great, which was obviously not the most productive way to, to approach it. So when I met a lot of resistance and encountered things that, you know, aspects of the business that I didn't quite understand or, or different opinions on things or realized that, you know, we all had different goals. You know, things got complicated quickly. Yeah. Um, and I, I would say as a family, as a whole, we have a problem with like passive aggressive communication where my dad is the expert at passive aggressive. <laughs> and, and BJ, you think that's unique in some way? No, to... no, I, I, <laughs> well, we, we all I'm specialize kidding. in I'm our kidding. own things. We absolutely do. <laughs> yeah. So it, was there a moment you joined, you say November of 2013? And you sit down with your dad and say, I'm coming back to the business, or was there a discussion there, and how did that go? Before he talked to me, I, I think my cousin had pitched the idea to my father, and my father had said that uh, he was open to it and thought it was a, a good idea. So I think that actually took place beforehand. And then after the initial conversation where my cousin you know, pitched this idea to me, uh, there was a whole series of conversations. I, I remember a couple times my wife and I took my dad out to dinner just to discuss it and talk about our concerns, our ideas, and what his concerns were, and what kind of a timeline were we looking at for, you know, did you, were you looking to retire in the next year or, you know, 10 years or what, you know, we, we just kind of wanted to get all the details. So there was a lot of discussion uh, early on about it. And um, I think in retrospect, one of, one of the things that I learned is that when we had these discussions and we talked about our expectations, it would have been nice to get that written down. Not so much in terms of a, like a formal agreement, 
although in some cases that might have been good. But just so that we had like a written record of like, this is what we discussed and this is, you know, we all agreed that this was going to be a goal or that this was going to be our plan. Um, because I think that early on we all had kind of high in the sky ideas for how this was going to work. And then when we actually got into the, the meat and potatoes work of making it happen, um, that a lot of those ideas just went, you know, to the wayside. I think there's so many interesting dynamics that are not that are not unique. You have entrepreneurs who now at some point of 20, 30, 35 years in the same business. And so their perspective of outside of, of how companies are run and, and management perspectives can be limited. You have a, a DNA and an entrepreneur who who ultimately has left a business to start their own company or purchase a company because they don't like how things are being run. So they have a very clear concept most of the time on how they're going to run the business. And a lot of that kind of becomes, and we've talked about this before in some of our, our other podcasts, of making all the decision. It begins this environment of being the resource for all the answer. And that just now, you know, how do I step out of that role? when that becomes my fabric. It's some of what you're alluding to. And, and I think um, we hear a lot, you know, we talk to um, some older, older gen folks who, who've started their own businesses and, and they'll be like, you know, what, what would you tell your younger self? And, and they all say the same thing in, in some kind of interesting spin on it, patience. You know, just, just need to be patient, just need to, you just need to do the next thing. And so you look at someone like yourself, the group sees you as this 18 year old. You're managing a team, you're growing a team, you're, uh, you're speaking, you're, you're advancing your education, you've got all these tools, and it's just like, you know, don't worry about BJ, he's over in the corner, he needs to relearn the business. And you, you're saying, wait a second, you know, I might not know specifically, but I got some chops behind me and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm ready to go, you're ready to run. And, and so all of a sudden, it's the first three months and now this struggle is, is being created. And, and I think you hit on something that's very important but very hard to do, and that's this, how are we going to document what this looks like? Somewhere along the line, the entrepreneur thinks, well, your dad, for instance, well, BJ wants to know what this timeline is. Does that mean that I got to exit, that I got to hit, hit the bricks? And that's not the case. This is just tra a transition plan in order to allow you the opportunity to grow into these other functional areas of the business to be able to take the reins. Nobody's Nobody's saying he's got to hand them to you. And I don't think you were asking for that. No. And you're there already and you're trying, you and your wife are trying to get this mapped out and probably getting a fair amount of verbal affirmation, but, but now you're in it and, and things aren't moving the way, the way they should. So talk about now how, I don't know how it's going for Joe. I don't know if he's seeing kind of the same dynamics. I don't know if you guys are on separate paths, but but now you guys are communicating and you're trying to manage through this. What's that like? One of the things that's interesting about Joe's situation is that he had already been with the company for 15 plus years by point. that point. Yeah. So he, I think, was used to the dynamic. And I think that he was used to things taking longer than any of us had planned. And I mean, ultimately, looking back on it now, the from when I got there to when we completed and signed on the dotted line and, and, and actually made the purchase of the company and transferred ownership, it was really only about five years, which 
is, I guess, fairly quick. <laughs> I, I, I know. think so as well. So one of the things that I struggled with and had to learn myself, like you said, was was patience. Like that was something that I think I went in, and and this is probably a characteristic that's common with me. Like I, I go in, I'm like, okay, let's do this, let's make it happen, and I never understood the need to wait. The best thing that I did was find a way to advocate for what I was looking to do while at the same time giving everybody the time and space to, to, to do that. And that was something where my cousin, I think, may not have always come across his patients, but I think he, he realized that this process is going to take more time than I was thinking it would. So he helped me kind of throttle back a bit and, and just sort of let the process work. He had a sense that while the process was taking a while that we needed to keep the momentum going. Mm. So we could be patient, let things take time, but we needed to have this momentum going towards a, a completion of the deal. Um, otherwise, it was likely never, never to happen. Um, and one of the things that he pointed out to me that I think turned out to be true um, is that when I got there, when I came to the business and started working and I started, you know, they handed me, these are the problem areas we need someone to, to, to handle. Um, and I started making sure things were getting done and I started... Uh, a lot of work on on projects that had been stagnant for a while and and taking over the reins in some areas uh, pretty early on, I think that one of the effects that had is that took the pressure off of my dad and my uncle uh, for their transition planning. They they kind of <laughs> were, were kind of like, okay, well, now... This is going great. Yeah, this is going just fine. We don't have to go anywhere. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't think any of them honestly believed it's like, okay, now we can just stretch this out as long as we want. That, I'm sure that wasn't their intention. When things were running better, it definitely took some of the pressure off to, uh, to do this uh, quickly. And that, uh, I, I think, probably lent itself to things taking a little longer than, than they might otherwise. Were there times early on in those first number of months where you were like, oh, man, what did I get myself into? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there were. There, there were times in the first few months where I was um, having difficulty myself transitioning from a management role in a fairly large organization uh, where I had a lot of support. I had a lot of mentors within the company. I had a lot of, uh, there was just, the whole company had a, a structure and a, a, yeah, a cadence to it. We had regular meetings and and a whole system of processes where things just kind of worked. And I, moving from that to the family business, where again, it's like more of an environment where, you know, we all wear a lot of hats, we all do whatever needs to be done. And um, yeah, it's sort of this centralized control idea where the, you know, the owner of the company, you know, the, the uh, my dad in a lot of cases was just sort of the, the person to make the decisions and you know nothing was really documented there were no meetings there was you know nothing like that so i think early on i struggled a lot with that transition realizing that the structure i had kind of grown accustomed to was no longer there not that that's good or bad or, or anything but it was it was definitely something that was hard for me to get used to and there was a lot of resistance to, to of course changing anything that we did because it you know well, it works fine. Why would we do it differently? My favorite saying, and I want to just take a step back because I think this is an important, you know, you and Joe meet, he pitches this idea to you, you get on board, you have meetings with, with your dad to kind of work through things. At that point in time, are you and Joe 
putting an offer in front? Are your is your your uncle and dad are are they meeting saying, okay, guys, here's what we want and here's what we want it to look like? There's a nuts and bolts side. If I could have changed anything about the way we did it, it probably would have been the way we addressed that kind of quantitative uh, part of it. There was this fear of one side appearing to be too greedy or you know unfair to the others. And if I going back to when my parents or my, my dad, my uncle, when they took over from my grandfather, again, I wasn't around for that, but my understanding is, is that there was a lot of animosity between the parties over how that went down. My father and uncle were cognizant of that, and they did not want to be unfair to my cousin and I. They didn't want to, uh, they didn't want us to be unfair to them. You know, they, they wanted it to be fair and equitable. I, there was this odd belief that I think we all shared to a certain degree that we didn't know how to make that happen. Mm. And so there was sort of this tacit agreement between us that what we should do is we should have the business valued by an outside party, which in and of itself isn't a bad idea. I mean, that, you know, that's pretty standard. And then whatever that value is, we'll, you know, they'll just like name that and that that's what it would, would be. Um, but in practice, what occurred was that my, we, my dad would drag his feet on, on having that valuation done. You know, that became a, the first point of contention. It's like, well, you, we agreed that this was kind of how it was going to happen, but now we're not doing that. We pushed and pushed, and finally he got a, a valuation firm to, to come out and look at the company and, and start doing all this stuff. And we, my cousin and I, were excluded entirely from that process. It was completely opaque to us. We didn't know what communications took place between the, the valuation people, my father and uncle, and we didn't know what was being discussed. We had a theory that was confirmed by another family member later that the initial value that they came back with wasn't what they were expecting the company to be worth, which I'm told happens like 95% of the time. Sure. <laughs> the company's never worth quite what the, the, the current owners think it's worth. And they, they saw that and they, they thought, you know, this, this isn't going to work. So then things got really quiet. <laughs> like there was you know, no communication you know, about what's happening or, or whatnot. And then they started tweaking with the assumptions that went into the valuation model. All of this was a roundabout way of them you know, building a case for this is what we need to retire. Yeah. And that, for them, that, that was the, the big question that they were trying to answer. Meanwhile because it was happening kind of in the dark and Joe and I weren't involved, uh, we felt left out and there was more contention building about like, we're not included in this process. And you know, this number is based on assumptions that we had no say in, in, you know, that we don't agree with or whatever. And that led to some pretty heated arguments where in retrospect, again, having, if we had started with, you know, what do we need? Well, Joe and I need to be able to, to purchase a company at a fair price that allows us to grow it and keep it going. And our parents needed a secure retirement. If we started with that conversation and said, well, what, does, what is that number? What does that look like? I feel like we might have been better off, but kind of the way we went about it, um, and I, again, I, I think that I believe that my father's decision to kind of exclude us from that and, and, and kind of conduct the process behind closed doors, honestly, I don't think it was, you know, it's not because he's trying to be a jerk or you know, he's trying to take control of the situation. I think it was because he was 
he was very afraid of ending up with an untenable situation where you know maybe the business isn't worth what it's he's hoping it is maybe there's some other issues that he's not aware of and then he ends up getting stuck with um a retirement that he you know he can't live with yes where i feel like if we because what we ended up doing is we we ended up you know they made an offer we made a counter offer there's a lot more arguing <laughs> and then eventually we sat down and had a conversation and they they basically said this is what we need it's like for this deal to work this is the amount that we need and joe and i discussed them we said we can do that and once that was all said and done we kind of like got to that point we're like oh gosh that was it why why didn't we start there but <laughs> how tough was that on you personally during those times i hear you say argue i hear I you think say same thing i, I hear you say contention that like yeah. that's got to be a really difficult time for you it is um Actually, it's funny because I, I wear a, a Fitbit that has a heart rate monitor on it. And there, there's a day where we had, it was the day we presented our counter offer to my, my dad and uncle. And uh, you could tell based on my heart rate what time of day that conversation took place. <laughs> and I, I think I took a screenshot of it and I saved it somewhere because I'm like, oh, it actually works. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, yeah, there, there, there was a lot of... Uh, um, a lot of things that I think would, would just sort of boil over with us. Like I said, we're, we, have, we tend towards the passive-aggressive side, and so there's a lot of not saying anything until we can't hold back anymore, and then we start you know, screaming at each other. But it, it was bad. Uh, it was something where, um, on more than one occasion, I know I've been accused of being unfair, of uh, not caring about their future, of being greedy, of whatever, none of which are things that I think apply to me. And there was... At the same time, we had made accusations to them that they were trying to sneak things into our agreement at the last minute and that they were not communicating with us and they were trying to drag this out and all this other stuff. When, you know, of course, the reality is, is that they're facing this most massive transition that they're ever going to have in their lives. There's all kinds of emotions that go along with that. And Joe and I are on the other side of that trying to we're planning on something that's going to basically be the foundation for our entire futures. And that's a huge, you know, bit. And instead of talking about that and discussing it, we kept, uh, we kind of fell into this trap of this, you know, tit for tat, like, well, you know, if, if you want this, then that's fine. Then we want to do this to the term. And, <laughs> yes. and like all these things that in the end, at the end of the day, weren't, how, how long did that go on for you guys? It went on. It, it went on in sprints. Um, our business obviously is is somewhat seasonal because uh, we're you know the fertilizer industry. We're you know we're busiest in uh, in spring and summer, and then things tend to taper off in the fall. So fall would typically be the time that we would tackle projects and other things. And I think that um, what happened was uh in the the final year before we signed the agreement that fall prior to that was when we were doing all this stuff with the valuation and we were doing all this stuff with you know we we got uh, a couple of attorneys to to represent each side and and sort of work out um the details of uh the agreement and the seller's note and all the other things that we we went through um and in, in that process, like in that kind of when business wasn't terribly busy, that's where a lot of those conversations would take place. A lot of the debates would happen. And then January would roll around and we start getting busy again. And so we started focusing on just running, you know, flying the airplane, running the business. And, uh, <laughs> and, and things would sort of cool off 
a little bit until the attorneys got back to us with the next version of the documents. Or, you know, there was some disagreement unrelated to anything else, and we'd blow up at each other and start dragging up all the stuff about the, the business transition. Um, and it was it was hard. The lowest point for me was somewhere after they had presented their first offer to us and I think had maybe rejected our counteroffer or something like that. This was by now the spring of the year that we, we did this. I think the spring of 2017 in there somewhere. And um, I, the lowest point for me was I, I had had a conversation with my dad that was a whole bunch of not actually discussing what we really wanted to say. And I felt, I, I felt so cheated. I felt so hurt by, you know, his apparent focus on things that were clearly not good for us. It seemed totally unfair to me. And I just felt like, you know, I, I had that moment where I'm like, we made a huge mistake. I shouldn't be here. This is awful. And I remember like driving home and being so stressed out that uh, I got home and I immediately went to the bathroom and threw up. I, I just, uh, the, the stress had gotten to the point where I, I actually had made myself sick. It wasn't eggs and bacon this time. But, <laughs> um, and my wife had, she, she actually, she seemed so concerned for me. Like she actually looked a little bit scared. Obviously this isn't something that we can, you know, we can't continue this way. You know, something's got to change. And I think for me, that was where, or I started to look at the perspective that, you know, long-term, is this going to be good for us? And, you know, the business was growing, things were going well, even though there was a lot of tension between all the parties involved, we were answering questions, we were making progress towards things. And I think I had to like, stop and reset and say, this is, this is all for the greater good. And if we work through this, it's going, we're going to get to the finish line. And the opportunity is still a, a good one. And if we can just navigate this piece, we'll get there. And so that made it a little bit easier for me. During this five years span, like in the ups and downs and the arguing, did it, it obviously had to spill over into your personal family dynamic it, christmas it, it and did. thanksgiving yeah. and it was interesting because there was um a lot of tension between my dad and i during this time and i'm happy to report that that since then since we've taken over the business and 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 all this is now behind us like that's become much better but uh, holidays and whatnot were there was kind of this like underlying tension that people might have sensed but we didn't ever talk about business when non-business family members were around. Um, and we uh, kind of made the best of, of that situation. Um, and certainly, while all of this was going on, not only was the, the business transition happening, but my daughter was born, we were new parents for the first time, and so there were all these other things that were, were happening. And yeah, this, this tension kind of overshadowed a lot of it. You've already kind of expressed some things you'd do differently. Some of the experience that I have in in the merger and acquisition side, I think, make this a timely message that I want to convey and, and uh, feel free to weigh in on any of this. Ownership needs to decide, am I going to transition this business to my family 
or am I going to sell it to a third party? I, I think that is something they have to reflect on. I think there are dynamics there. You expressed it very well. We want to pay a fair price for the business that allows us to continue to grow and invest. And, and they have a need and a desire to fund, fund retirement and a number that makes sense for them. So, so I think that in, in my personal experience, um, you know, you might get a bigger number selling it to a third party. However, your ability to control what's going to happen to that business with respect to it being a family transition uh, and remaining in that ownership structure goes out the window. And I think that whoever owns those shares needs to start with that decision. Okay, what am I going to sell this to, to a third party and maximize that exit value or, or am I going to keep it within the family? And maybe this is more private equity speak from my background, but I think the next lesson that kind of boils down from that is a, a third party doesn't place any value in your blood, sweat, and tears to grow that business. I can't monetize that in the business structure, whether I'm a strategic buyer or I'm a private equity buyer or, or I'm transitioning in the family. There is a system and four or five methodologies with, with how businesses are valued. If you look at all four or five of them are going to give you some kind of expectation of what that thing's worth. You know, going out and getting valuations, I think, is a good exercise, but there's always going to be you know, an unhappy party. Family businesses, if they know that they want to transition to, to family members, they can, they can spend time, effort, and energy putting buy-sell agreements in place now before they even begin that transition that kind of spell out how it's going to be valued, spell out how the shares are going to be transitioned. And, and those things can take place well in advance. I, I can't even imagine what, what you've gone through with respect to those kinds of dynamics because here's this business and it gets sold by your grandfather to your uncle and your dad and they probably paid like two times cash for it because your grandmother put her foot down and said, we're getting the heck out of here. And now it's like these guys grew it and, and now they want to monetize that. But, but you've both been working in the business and those things get really complicated and really sticky and, and this that inner voice of, am I being greedy? Are you being fair? Who, you know, back and forth encounters just, just complicates the hell out of things. And so to the extent that you can put an objective buy-sell agreement in place that kind of spells out valuation, I think is going to save everybody a whole lot of heartache. No, I, I think you make a, an excellent point. And I guess the, the thought that comes to mind is that you, know, you shouldn't go shopping when you're hungry. If you're in the middle of, if you're planning the transition when it's when you're thinking about retirement in the next couple of years, I mean, you know, it's never too late to start. But at the same time, like starting earlier is better. Starting before all these pressures and fears are weighing on you is the best time to do it. Some things I learned along the way, I, I kind of approached this thinking like, okay, we'll buy the the company from you know, from our parents, and like there's a there are um, there are instruments that exist to do that. There are different methods to do that. And there's very standard, you know, contracts and things. But no, there is no one right way to do uh, a transition, especially in like a, a family business. It, it's it's going to be unique to, to each business. And I think that was something that I didn't realize early on. I kind of thought like, oh, we'll call somebody up and we'll just, you know, sign here. And like, we'll just do like as, as though there was like one standard path for it. And that's... Um, that's not really true, and it, it really depends on what 
what the what everyone's goals and needs are and i think that the sooner you can articulate that which is where an outside party might be helpful it would have been helpful for us like we had gone to an outside party to value the business but if we had talked to someone outside the, the company to say well how do we even approach this um or like what questions should we even be asking that could have been helpful early on uh and yeah it would have been helpful if my father and, and uncle but also my, my cousin and i if we had you know, put more advanced planning into this. My cousin and I do have a buy-sell agreement between us. And just five years into the business, we're already looking at it and saying, maybe we should revisit it. Maybe something's changed. That's great insight. Yeah, it's, it's, it's something where I think, again, you're, you know, don't shop when you're hungry. You, you, you know, make your shopping list and then go in and, and then stick with that, that plan. Um, but by the time, like, you're, if you're a couple years out from retirement, it's going to be a lot harder to make those decisions objectively and, you know, have a nice, clean, smooth transition, um, which I think is part, one of the reasons why, like, a lot of successful transitions, I think, do take a long period of time yes. because they've, they've planned that out and they know that they've allowed some slack in the system. Having some outside assistance, whether it's a formal consultant that comes in and helps you with it or if, you know, in my case, that was how I became involved in the uh, EFBC uh, was to kind of learn from other companies that had been through, you know, th this process. Uh, and that's been a, a tremendous resource for me as well. We touched on it a little bit in the beginning and you said it about your uncle too, is this just because this transition takes place doesn't mean that your uncle needs to uh, pack up his desk and leave. He, mm -hmm. He's transitioning his ownership in the business, but you still may place a high value in his customer relationships and his counsel. There, there's no cliff. You know, hey, we, we, we closed this deal, Uncle. Thanks. It's been great having you pack up your desk. And I think many believe that's the case. But, but we, um, we have this phrase, this, you know, the brain in the jar. I mean, there's a significant amount of historic knowledge and value there that we want to tap into. So I, I think that the, it, there's a misnomer when, we, when people talk about succession and transition that it's some fateful event and they believe, well, I, we can't talk about succession. You're, you're trying to send me to the old folks home to retire. That, that's not it. This is about keeping a sustainable ownership structure in the company so it can continue on for the next hundred years. And in our case, the day we signed the agreement and, and everything, I, I think my father uh, left. He went full on went into retirement. He, he and he hasn't really been back since. And I, I think he's very happy doing, you know, spending the time the way he, he does now. I think he was ready to get out of the business. Uh, whereas with my uncle, like, we kept calling him back and saying, hey, can you help us with this? Or, you know, having uh, different conversations with him about it. So the, the transition was definitely different. And it, it would be for, for anybody. The, the day you signed, it had to be just such a massive weight off your shoulders to be just done with that process. It, it really was. Um, and I... Had, it had done something else at the time, too. Uh, since getting out of the airlines, I hadn't really flown much. I just didn't have the time. And so um, when I, that summer that we had signed the agreement, um, I also got back into to flying again and uh, picked up a, I actually picked up a part-time job as a flight instructor because what better way to celebrate buying a business than getting a part-time job? <laughs> um, and... Uh, I, I just on weekends, I would work with students again, like I had 15, 20 years ago. And um, it was fun. 
and we were, I, it was a, a huge weight off my shoulders, and I, I spent a lot of time uh, working with this flight school for a bit, and I remember apologizing to my wife, saying, I know I'm spending a lot of time doing this, but, you know, I'm, I'm able to help these kids out, and, and there, a lot of them were, were college-bound people that were looking to do, you know, either Purdue's aviation program or, or some others, and uh, I remember her response. She says, I... I love it because you're just so happy. I haven't seen you this happy in a while. And part of it was that, you know, I was having fun of flying, but part of it was is that, yeah, it was a huge load off to, to have finally put this behind us. And so many things changed overnight. Uh, I, my relationship with my dad. Just yeah, I was going to ask, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, explain that because I think a lot of our listeners, a lot of the membership of AICC is, is family business. And they struggle with a lot of the same stuff that you're talking about. And and I think when you said that earlier, it made me feel good just knowing that personally you guys are in a better spot. Oh, definitely. There's a happy ending to this story. <laughs> it, it, very much so. Very much so. And uh, we, we learned a lot in the process. And, and there definitely might have been some things that we would have done differently. But I think throughout the whole thing, one of the things that I was clear on and that I, I, I believe my father also was clear on is that... Um, our future relationship wasn't worth sacrificing for anything. And so while we may have had disagreements and whatnot, we worked them out and I think had aired our grievances with each other. And, uh, but once, once we got to the finish line, once everything was all said and done, we put it all behind us and, and we went on to have you know, a great relationship. I got to think it's almost impossible in something like this to avoid some form of conflict. It, it, it's it's got to be virtually impossible unless you have a scenario where, where the um, the older generation effectively says, "I I have to get out. Here here's the number, you know." And they're they're really kind of willing. And uh, we have a close friend, uh, Tony Schleich, uh, Dave Claxton. You know, they set up a meeting cadence. They set up a game plan of how Tony was going to work his way through the functional areas in a multitude of leadership roles in order to kind of get a holistic view of the business. And Dave was going to sit there on a weekly basis to coach him along and maybe sometimes kick him in the, in the ass and sometimes give him an attaboy. But, but it was some form of timeline to say, to get to a point where he could say he was ready. And I know a little bit about their story, but, but Dave knew, like he bought the business, the late thirties, early forties. He knew he wasn't staying. Dave was like, hey, here it is. He went to all his kids and said, who wants in, who wants out, and, and basically put a whole plan in place. With the exception of that, I think there's almost always going to be some emotional conflict that takes place that's impossible to avoid. And I think what I've learned for myself, both in this process and just in business in general, is that it's a wasted effort to try and avoid the conflict. It's much more important to figure out how do you handle the conflict appropriately. To be honest, like one of the first events I went to for EFBC was one where they talked about having difficult conversations. Uh, it was they had an author as a, a presenter, and we went through some exercises and these these like a, this large group. Um, so we were at seated at tables, and our table mate would be our, our partner for the different exercises. And I remember actually rehearsing a conversation I wanted to have with my dad, where I was trying to explain to him why I felt. I felt this pressure to, to move forward with this, and I, I the, the exercise was about how to kind of phrase things where you can express what you're feeling without blaming the other person for 
for the situation, you know, trying to present it in a way that's constructive. I had this conversation with my dad where I, I told him that the reason I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about all of this. I feel afraid that if this deal doesn't work out or if this continues to go on the way it's been going, then I'm going to wake up one day feeling like I made a terrible mistake. And that was the, the phrase that kind of came out of this, this exercise. And phrasing it that way, I think, allowed him to see where I was coming from. And I'm not saying, you know, I wasn't saying that it was his fault that I would feel this way or anything else, but that that was, that was the emotion that I was dealing with. And so that was one of those little tools that I picked up along the way that I, I think was, was, was helpful. But yeah, it's not, definitely not about avoiding conflict. It's all about how do you handle it effectively. You speak to people, you speak to organizations about leadership. You guys can visit him at bjslater.com. He says there on his page that, you know, he helps leaders think like pilots so they can comfortably act and lead more effectively. And obviously, the lessons you learned as a pilot clearly have made you a successful business owner. I think that one one of the things about aviation as an industry and the, the my role as a, a safety program manager when I was doing that, the most fascinating thing to me was all the research done into how people make decisions and how when we make errors, what the sources of those errors are. In the aviation world, we call it human factors. Um, the, the closest analog in the business world is probably industrial psychology or organizational psychology, and I alluded to an interest that I've had in that as well. But um, what we've had to do is, in the aviation industry, we've had to face up to the mistakes that we make as human beings because they can have, you know, fatal consequences, you know, catastrophic consequences. You know, so we're, we're trained in a lot of ways to look objectively at what we do and not see mistakes and errors in decision-making as failings. And I, pilot error is kind of a charged term because pilot error is usually one of the causes of, of an, an accident. Um, but when we look at pilot error, we look at it objectively and say, well, it wasn't that the pilot was wrong or did something wrong or, or if they made the wrong decision, we say, well, why did that seem to them to be the right decision at the time? And a lot of lessons come out of that in terms of being able to be aware of our own biases, our own uh, cognitive shortcuts, heuristics and things that we, we take, things that might influence our decisions emotions and how they play a role and everything down to, you know, did you get a good night's sleep and, and have you had too much coffee today? You know, things, things of that nature that all play into how we work as decision makers. And, and I think that that model or that, that way of looking at things has a, a role to play in business. Self-awareness and um, emotional intelligence, which is another big EFBC item, those are tools that I think are becoming more and more important. And knowing how we operate and, and having ways of putting up some guardrails for our behaviors and decision-making so that we're, we're, we're less likely to make an error and we're more likely to, to trap and mitigate the error when we do make it. Like Those are things that I think are beneficial in all places. This has been great, and uh, thank you so much. I, I think... Um, what just resonating in my head and the way you described it is this this concept of aviate, navigate, communicate. Yeah, I, I, and, and I, really, I really love it because, 
the, just the the ability, you know, fly the plane. You know, you're you're running this business. You can't be distracted by by the mishaps. The ability to just understand, you know, that that's the most important thing. Where you're going. We talk about this constantly in in a lot of our our dialogue is where is the business going and how are you going to get it there and and then communicating that. And I think your uh, your candor and and your um, your honesty is really refreshing. And thanks so much for sharing. It's been it's been truly uh, valuable. Thank you, BJ. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for having me. Breaking down boxes. New shows will drop the first Monday of every month. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Mm-hmm.